Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I agree with our guest today, Jonathan Rowson, that more and more people are coming out of a cultural closet we made, using the word spirituality with a new seriousness. He is an applied philosopher and a chess grandmaster who explores the influence of our inner worlds on society and politics. The challenge for democracy now is partly, he says, a challenge to change human consciousness. We engage his broad spiritual lens on the great dynamics of our time, from social life to the economy to the climate. Getting things in their fullest, broadest, and deepest perspective is necessary to actually feel this problem. You know, the crisis of climate change in particular is a crisis of disconnection between the facts and the feelings. We know something is true. We don't feel that it's true. We don't live as if it's true. There is what you might call a kind of stealth denial. We speak as if we believed it. But it's not obvious from our behavior and the way we vote and what we campaign for and how we talk that we accept this is a real problem. And I think that is ultimately spiritual. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Jonathan Rousen has studied the brain, philosophy, economics, and education, and he directed the Social Brain Center at the Royal Society of Arts. And he's co-founder and director of Perspectiva, a research organization in London that examines the relationship, as he says, between systems, souls, and society. One of the threads of your thought and perspective and work is the matter of, well, just using the word spiritual, reasserting it, and then pondering like what it means, what it doesn't mean. And it, it makes me curious about if you can identify kind of roots of that longing or that perception um, mm. in your earliest life and, and perhaps in whatever you would now look back and call the religious or spiritual background of your childhood. How do you hmm. think about that? Well, two things come to mind. I have a particular memory of childhood in mind. um, But the first thing to say to contextualize that is, I think the sort of spiritual sensibility towards life is entirely natural. There's no need to over-explain it. It's something that's sort of inherent in human nature. Um, But insofar as it's distinctive for each individual, the memory that comes to mind is I'm I'm roughly 10 years old. I'm in a place called Westburn Park in Aberdeen, which is in the northeast of Scotland. And I'm alone and um, I'm trying to figure things out, but um, I've probably got a ball. It's, it's likely to be a white ball. I'm kicking it against a fence that's uh, next to a play park where younger children are playing. And I'm really just biding my time. And I think what was going on in my life at that moment were various things I had to make sense of. My, my father became mentally ill, my parents separated. And as a young person, I was just sort of thrown into making sense of it. Right. And in that context, I suppose I felt at some level held um, Mm. um, that I was at some more fundamental level looked after. And I think it began from there. That that gave rise to a kind of a willingness to introspect, to reflect, and those things gave rise to a fuller spiritual life later on. And um, were you... 
when did you start to play chess? Because it, it, it also feels like that sh- has shaped you existentially. <laughs> no, it has. It yeah. has. And um, well, I was five years old when I learned the moves. Uh-huh. And um, I played like any young schoolboy with friends and at school. But then around the period of time between maybe nine years old and about 13 years old, it really became a kind of passion. And almost every waking hour that I could, I was trying to figure something out on a chessboard. And I think you don't need to be too much of a, an armchair psychotherapist to, to see a connection between a young child trying to make sense of the world and seek refuge yeah. um, and finding some sort of order in chess. and also, Right, making order. Yeah, yeah. in a place yeah. where one can grow somehow. So one of the ways you've spoken about your kind of driving passion and inquiry now is this, uh, well, here's an observation you've made that that you are focused on the societal challenge we have become accustomed to ignoring, mm. and that is the inherent nature, meaning, and purpose of it all. That we do problems, we do policies, we do systems, but we don't, we don't really even aspire to a grasp of the whole predicament. Mm-hmm. And you make this observation that feels so relevant to me, but I don't think we say this often enough, that, that one thing that's different about our crisis is that you know, unlike the Cold War, which I lived through, you know, where it was very clear who the enemy was and what the risks were and what the stakes were, part of our problem is is our inability to diagnose and articulate the character of the crisis, which which I feel is that grasp of the whole predicament that you're talking yes. about. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's right. There's a, there's an intelligibility conundrum at the heart of our experience. It's we sort of sense something that we can't grasp. On the one hand, the world has achieved a great deal and we've developed formidably through technology and, you know, there's lots to be celebrated. At the same time, the kind of confluence of existential threats, not least ecologically, Mm. but also democracy, um, you know, fragmenting in a certain sense or weakening, inequality becoming sort of out of control and then technology may be overreaching in certain ways. So there's sort of a range of different threats to our bearings of who we are and what life's about. And in that context, we look back to, well, what do we have to hold on to? If there, if, if everything is a variable, what are the constants? And one way of looking at it, Krista, I don't know if you'd agree, you probably heard from people who've spoken this way before, but one way to see it is that it's it's kind of like a new axial age. It's, it's a period of time where, yeah. you know, there's such upheaval in in the sort of economic and political spheres and technological spheres. And the axial age was this handful of centuries, like second to sixth or eighth BCE, in which. Um, well, why don't you describe how you, well, you know, think about the you comparison? Could, you could you know? describe it as as a sort of period of time around the Bronze Age, where mm-hmm. technology developed in such a way, places were changing because there were marketplaces emerging. And technologies would make tribal warfare all the more deadly because right. it was also you know, a very violent time. Like violent time, and, and in that sort of space of massive upheaval in the sort of external world, people were obliged to sort of, sort of almost recalibrate their sense of who they were. There was a sort of shift in consciousness at a, a global level. Yeah, well, the Hebrew prophets and yeah. the and Confucius. This was the lifetime, of, and also of Socrates and. Yeah. Um, and um, and the Buddha. <laughs> yeah, certainly. But, but what is so astonishing also about that period of time, because that was also global, is that those were disconnected cultures mm. and and uh, countries. 
Um, yeah. And and yet it does feel like something happened at a consciousness level because these very kindred and deep things happened around the same time. And my sense, and I think I'm not alone, is that something similar is going on at the moment. Mm-hmm. People are, are, are experiencing a kind of waking up. And it's quite diffuse. It's often quite subtle. Um, you can't be sure if you're kidding yourself if it's happening. But there's a, a feeling of a sort of planetary immune response emerging hmm. um, in, in levels of awareness and attention that may give rise to some new way of seeing the world and seeing each other. And we don't quite know what it is yet, but th- my feeling is that something is emerging of that nature. And yet, to get there, we have to sort of step off the treadmill and the, the kind of semiosphere around us that's telling us how to live. Um, mm-hmm. So we need to develop some kind of immunity to those those forces that are constantly telling us who we are and how we should live. how we should live. Um, you said a minute ago who we are, what life is about. Of course, these are the ancient questions, but they are, they are questions that, that have to have a place in interior life, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, not that that's disconnected from life in the world. And in fact, the point you're making is that it needs to be relevant to politics and society. It's a challenge though, right? You, I'm sure you know yourself that many people who are very interested in, in spiritual life, broadly conceived, mm-hmm. They, they're quite happy to, to stay in that realm and, yeah. and, and think and speak and be in that place. And then those who are more interested in the political world, likewise, prefer to think in terms of questions of power and influence and so forth. And there are many who recognize that there is a deep connection between these worlds and broad brushstrokes here, but people sort of in their 20s and 30s, when I, I speak of the spiritual and the political in the same sentence, mm. they, they don't flinch and they sort of see exactly what I mean. And those somewhat older want me to sort of clarify very precisely what I mean by my terms. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, and they want they want that yeah. to pin me down analytically so that I can't yeah. breathe. There's something you say. I think this is a really intriguing idea. You know, you say so. There's this analytical mode with which we do things when we're being serious, mm-hmm. and it has to do with measurement and precision, and and its metrics are numbers, and yet you say the better part of us is struggling to be heard in public life. Well, one, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a key source for this, um, which is Ian McGilchrist's work on, on um, different forms of attention that we pay to the world. Mm. And as, before I did the Spirituality Project, I, I, uh, or maybe alongside it, I did an inquiry into uh, this particular understanding of the world. I think it's a profound viewpoint that needs to be considered at least. Um, now in, as I understand it, uh, within neuroscience, there was a period of time where people felt that the brain hemispheres were very different. And then there was a period of time where pop psychology got hold of that and sort of ran wild with it and yeah. started saying that your left brain was this and your right yeah. brain was that. And most of it was bogus. But what Ian did, uh, and he's become quite a good friend over the years, is that he stopped asking the question of what did the different hemispheres do, and instead he asked, "What are they like? You know, what are they? What, if you if you think of a person, you don't ask, you know, 
what exactly are they? You ask, what are they like? What is that? Mm. What is their character? What is their nature? What is their disposition? And what what happens really is that the left hemisphere is typically trying to narrow things down to a point, and and turn something in sort of denature something, turn it into an algorithm, turn it into something that is like something else. While the right hemisphere is more sort of broadly vigilant, trying to give context, trying to see something more fully and more precisely in terms of what it actually is. And the reason this is relevant is that these two forms of attention, one that's sort of about focusing in and narrowing down and one that's kind of backing up and seeing the bigger picture, this is playing out culturally. And the, the period of time that we're in is one where that sort of narrowing of focus, metrics, everything being overanalyzed, people asking for evidence-based policy, people wanting to turn something into an algorithm so it can be put to scale. Right, right. This, this state of mind is, is very pervasive, right? Yeah. And, and what we've lost in that is the kind of broader pattern of attention that says, hang on, uh, what are we trying to do here? What is, the, what is the fuller context in which we're trying to make sense of things? Um, and of course, uh, that's a harder question to ask and answer because it, it requires soul searching and working together and lots of things which culturally are somewhat disempowered at the moment. Whereas the, the mode of operation that's a bit more analytical and precise and, and, and zooming in and trying to denature things, um, that has a certain amount of hegemonic power at the moment because mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the language of com computation yeah. and it's the language of, of you know, big tech um, and artificial intelligence. And so... There is this, I think... And it's the language of the stock market, right? It's like... The stock market, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think when I say the better part of us is struggling to be heard, there is that one reference, but I think it goes more... It goes deeper than that. It's, it's really about the fact that we are creatures of habit. We're not only um, creatures of habit in the sense that we have follow familiar patterns, but we're also habit-creating creatures. We actually try to make sort of niches for ourselves where we don't have to think too much. And convenience in some ways is mm. how that manifests. Mm. And the reason that matters is that for you know many things that are habitual and comfortable and convenient may not be that good for us and they may not be that good for each other and for the planet. And so we need to back out of that to sort of find the part of us that's a bit more free, a bit more considerate, um, to actually look more deeply at the, the habits that we're creating and ask if we can do better. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with applied philosopher and chess grandmaster Jonathan Rowson. interesting juncture also where, I mean, even the way you just described, the way we function, is is based on a new insight we have into how our brains work, how our bodies work, how we function as creatures, you know, why, mm. why we became this way. So even at the same time that we can describe things about ourselves that are part of the problem, there's some power in that knowledge, right, of being able to see ourselves. Yeah. I mean, we are we are dis disclosing ourselves yeah. to ourselves at some level, um, and that's a combination of globalization and scientific knowledge 
Um, and also maybe material affluence that, you know, having solved many, for, for many, in many places of the world, having mm -hmm. solved the major problems of survival, you move on to questions of, in theory at least, mm. you know, meaning and purpose and self-understanding. Um, so there is this period of time where we are doing this deep soul searching, or at least some, some are. But I wonder, I, to be honest, there are times it fills me with hope and there are times when I'm not so sure it's going to work out that well because um, I know there's a saying that uh, enlightenment is your ego's biggest disappointment. And, and I always find that quite a useful expression. Yeah, why? Why do you find that useful? Well, the, re the reason I say that is because I think that the, the, the desire to know oneself, the desire to sort of, for self-understanding, um, it's often dri driven not by a kind of humble um, sort of service spirit of trying to make sense of one's existence, but also more about, more like a kind of narcissistic identity project. You know, and there's a risk that the motivation for self-knowledge has to be right too. Yeah, I mean, also this interior life and a true desire for self-knowledge is a necessary complement to spirituality for spirituality not to... I mean, because, right, we, we talk so much about meditating, and but, you know, meditators can be the greatest of narcissists, right? This mm. is not... Um, just there's more to this what did you say are the better part of us that is struggling to be heard in public life then you know it's not like these spiritual practices actually guarantee enlightenment and i, I no, think that's far what from you're it. getting at right you're saying yeah. like, what is this more a and that this more is absolutely relevant to our life together that it it must play a greater role in the public realm yeah so i mean the language of spiritual sensibility helps i think but to be honest for those who f for, who find even that language problematic another way to think of it is is positive and negative freedom so we've lived in a kind of liberal hegemony for a long time where the prevailing idea was that the public realm was for questions of sort of resource allocation and um the private realm was was where you figured out what was true and what was good and what was beautiful. Mm -hmm. And um, you kept it to yourself. <laughs> kept it to yourself. Yeah, it was your business. You could, you know, if you want to believe X, Y, and Z, fine. But do it, do it in your own room. Yeah, and it's interesting also that that there has also been in modernity this idea, this this kind of assumption, certainly in intellectual circles, that secularization was happening and would continue, and and religion would if not disappear, just become ever more consigned mm. to the private mm -hmm. sphere. And in some ways, I mean, religion, I mean, the way I see it is that religious institutions are in a state of great evolution and flux like every institution. However, as you point out, what is happening instead is not what was predicted because, because spiritual inquiry and these questions simply don't go away. It turns out that they are part of us. And you have this great quote. I mean, I've heard this before, but I saw you re-quoted from Julian Barnes. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and that, that the sacred and this longing for the sacred, and in fact, this longing for the deep things, the better part of us, that this part of the human endeavor tended, uh, questioned, carried forward in time and community and ritual. Um, this is as vibrant as ever before. Yeah, it certainly can be, and it's it's um it's there for for people to experience and engage with. Um, the challenge is that it's not perceived that way, uh, at least not in the, the. I know the context in the U.S. is a little different, but yeah. 
in the you know secularization is some way further on here and um but i believe there's some recent survey by pew research that says you know 90% of the world will identify as being religious by about 20 2030 give or take <laughs> And that's an extraordinary way of yeah. looking at it, you know? Like, religion is not going away. Far from it. It's actually, yeah. Yeah. it's it's the sort of secular atheist view that is somewhat irregular. Mm. Um, and it's not necessarily because it's more more advanced or more sophisticated. Mm. Um, it could be because it's it's missing something. Um, uh, what is that God? I don't know. That's maybe going too far. But... Um, I think at least we have to be less allergic to the language of mm-hmm. of religion, and and not you know I have a friend called Elizabeth Oldfield who, who speaks about the G bomb um, with with regard to God, but I think a culture that can't use the word God without getting the heebie-jeebies has some serious problems. You know, like you should be able to just use the language without feeling that there's a sort of threat in the room. But 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 I think the important point is what you're driving at when when you say we have to be able to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And the words are all inadequate, and the words are are awkward, and they mean different things to different people. But we have to we have to be able to talk about this part of ourselves, about what mm-hmm. this what it means. Uh, what did you say that to take a look at more deeply at what it means to be human? When we have to have a more fulsome understanding of the human, um, in order to grapple with life and society in the way mm-hmm. that we long to. And that's what yeah. all this. That's what this is pointing at. It is, and I, and I think the the sort of preeminent uh, issue of our time is, you know, our only habitat is gradually being um, well destroyed. Is maybe the right word. It's 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 losing its resilience. Um, fundamental ecosystems are breaking down, and most of this is happening because of human behavior. More precisely, right. human behavior driven by a certain economic model. Um, now, in that context, for your your average individual trying to make sense of human existence and spiritual life, the connection isn't obviously clear. But I do think many are at home being aware, for instance, of climate change. I believe there's currently a storm on in, Flor- in Florida as we speak, um, and I I know that they'll be wondering, you know, what can I do? Um, this is happening, but it seems so much beyond me. The gap between a single person and this massive global challenge that isn't even simply human, it's sort of suprahuman and, and it's it's into the atmosphere and so forth. Then questions of you know perspective come into play, like getting things in their fullest, broadest and deepest perspective is necessary to actually feel this problem. You know, the, 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 the crisis of climate change in particular is a crisis of, of, of this connection between the facts and the feelings. We know something is true. We don't feel that it's true. We can't. We don't live as if it's true. There is what you might call a kind of stealth denial. We, we speak as if we believed it, but it's not obvious from our behavior and the way we vote and what we campaign for mm. and how we talk that that we we accept this is a real problem. Um, and I think that is a ultimately spiritual. And one one way of looking at it to, to give it a bit of definition is is most religious traditions. Uh, confront the question of death they, 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 you know it's, it's central to the fact that you're a mortal being that you have to consider how you're going to live with the one precious life that you have and in the context of climate change I think there's a very clear parallel between our the denial of our deaths the fact that we can't really confront this fact that we're going to die and the, the sort of denial of, of this planetary emergency I think the two are yeah. extremely closely linked and yet figuring out in what way they're linked and how facing up to one might help us deal with the other 
is, I think, a shared endeavor. This is so interesting, too, because um, so much of the hand-wringing that happens in the States, at least, is about, you know, the fight, you know, like climate change deniers, which Mm. sometimes is a matter of language and you know there i mean there's a whole spectrum of that but you're all, mm-hmm. you're talking about people <laughs> who may be using that language and and looking at the the facts and yet there's a step we haven't taken that would actually allow us to grapple with this i think so i mean while i was doing the project that one of the findings that i find most fascinating and it's it's really sort of uncanny is it's what we call post traumatic growth which is basically when people have some kind of trauma, maybe they have a, a cancer diagnosis or they're in an accident where they just survived. And, you know, they often, there's a report of people turning their lives around, living a more intrinsically motivated life with, you know, relationships and experiences at their heart and trying to serve in a certain way. And they're asked, you know, why did, this, why did you change your life around? And people say, well, I, I suddenly realized I might have died. And the irony there, of course, is that, you know, we were, they already knew that, you know. Yeah, in they, theory, were, they were definitely already going to die. Yeah, we, we should, you know, we should already have had that sort yeah. of moment of yeah. like, hang on, this is part of the curriculum already. Mm-hmm. But it's like, oh, we almost have to have that shock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think on many of our major problems, we haven't had that shock. And that's part of the problem. short break more with Jonathan Rowson and you can find this show again in three of our libraries at onbeing.org cultivating virtues moral imagination and reinventing common life we created libraries from our 15-year archive for browsing or deep diving by topic for teaching and reflection and conversation find this and an abundance of more at onbeing.org On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. In June, the foundation approved $85 million in new projects to accelerate discovery and inspire curiosity. Requests for funding will be accepted until August 16th. Learn more at templeton.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with the applied philosopher and chess grandmaster Jonathan Rowson. His work insists on holding a deeper appreciation for the influence of our inner worlds on society and politics. We're exploring how he applies a broad spiritual lens to the great dynamics of our time, from social life to the economy to the climate. So the way you talked about um, the ecological challenge and the, the human challenge implicit in that is, um, you know, you have this book called Spiritualize. And so that's kind of the 
you know, I don't know if you would use this language, but it feels like that's like spiritualizing the discussion, the our our reckoning with with the ecology. Mm-hmm. And I wanna I wanna just ask you about a couple of other areas and how this lens would take them on. So, you know, the economy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Economics. Someplace you said, maybe we can't reimagine the world without rethinking the economy, and perhaps it's better not to be an economist to make that case. What is mm. the economy anyway? I frequently sense that there is no such thing. And I think a lot of us feel that way right now. Right. We should call it out as far as, as often as possible. When, when mm-hmm. someone says the economy, what exactly are they yeah. talking about? Um, well, I think it's true, and, and I think this is no longer particularly controversial that that economic questions are too important to be left to economists because they're not at their heart sort of technical questions of for for a kind of scientific expertise they deal with questions of um of of how you make value judgments in the world and moreover economists haven't done a particularly great job of keeping the world from economic crises or distributing income properly and so forth. Mm. Um, when it comes to the economy, though, th- more fundamentally, there's a lot of good new economic thinking out there. I'm, uh, I'm currently a, a fellow at a, a place called the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity at the University of Surrey. Mm. And their uh, professor, Tim Jackson, is the lead. And they're trying to imagine what it would be like to have a viable economic model that didn't assume that economic growth was the be-all and end-all of it that you had a, a way of doing the economy that was giving rise to different forms of human flourishing that weren't necessarily about material advancement. And what's great about the way that work's being done is that they're calling upon artists and philosophers and psychologists and people from various walks of life to actually help imagine what an economic system would look like that spoke to human value more broadly conceived. Um, and I think I think we look at the word itself. I believe you know ecology and economy. They have the same root of eco, which I think comes down to home. So mm, there's something right, about right. Uh, yeah. I think there's something about the idea of home at the heart of economics yeah. that we need to t- re- reclaim ownership of because it's our home too. You know, I think um, there is a place for econometric analysis, but it's not at the forefront of public life. It's 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 once you've made a lot of difficult decisions together collectively about who we are and what we're living for. At that point, we might want to figure out how we go about, um, you know, making the economic models work. But the economic models themselves are are very much a servant. They shouldn't become the master. Mm. Yeah, it's something that occurred to me as I was reading you and preparing for this. And maybe it's connected to your, to the suggestion you're making, which is, which goes hand in hand with this, uh, that we need to work with realities like death and grief and loss. So is that right now, right at the center, especially of Western democracies, is, well, an, an incredible amount of trauma mm. that's been kind of hiding in plain sight. Mm. Racial, I mean, the, you know, the history of colonialism, the history of slavery, but, but beyond that, um, you know, trauma that has to do with the way we've done gender relationship, the, the way power has been wielded. And, you know, maybe if I think about how you were talking about death a minute ago and how in grieving there's this moment where you feel it. You don't just know it, mm-hmm. you feel it. Mm-hmm. And I think that certainly this reckoning with trauma, with all of our layers of trauma is happening at different rates for different people. But 
to some extent, it's being felt. Mm. Um, but, and yeah, you were saying that in a life, that moment can open to transformation. Mm-hmm. But I don't, you know, I don't think you get a guarantee that it's transformation. It's it's a terrible, messy, painful, right? Because there's a moment where you just live with the open wound, and it yeah. feels right. It feels like you will not ever get past this. Mm-hmm. Well, well, what I hear when you say that is, I, I think of ritual actually, um, mm-hmm. because I think that much of the purpose of ritual was a kind of collective inquiry into some of these deeper and darker aspects of our nature as right. a way of sublimating them in certain ways. So when you have, when you take communion, for instance, you're remembering a horrific act at some level, mm-hmm. but you're not really, you know, viscerally remembering it, but you're sort of acting out something happened, something really important happened, and we're honoring that now. And, and the reason I think of that is because in some ways, liberal democracy is the sort of thinnest kind of democracy there is, because democracy being of the people, for the people, by the people, uh, you know, a fuller conception of being together, living together, working together, figuring things out together. It's a much, it's implicitly a sort of communal endeavor. Whereas liberal democracy pulls us in the other direction towards the individual. And in theory, those things are very well balanced and they sort of um, keep each other in check at some level. But I think what's happened is that as our lives have become more and more privatized, these forms of shared ritual, um, shared experience, shared practice, shared inquiry, um, disinterested inquiry, you know, not being, not having a partisan interest that you're trying to advance, but a kind of passionate disinterest where you really care about what's going on, but not from any particular vantage point. Right. You want to just, just really understand what's the know. common good here. You yeah, want to I want to know here what's yeah. the common good here. How do we understand this? How do we get all the voices in the room to help us make sense of this? But those spaces are closing, and what we're having instead is a kind of competitive team sport, right. playing out as a kind of traumatic experience in public life. So I think. It's something to do with um, the heart of democracy is an underdeveloped theory of human nature that we have to get back in touch with. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with the applied philosopher and chess grandmaster, Jonathan Rowson. Uh, You are a father of sons, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, Yeah. and they're pretty young. Yes, uh, one just turned three, and uh, Vishnu is his name, and Kailash is nine. You're in, yeah, you're in that very active child rearing years. Um, all of these ways of thinking and seeing uh, that you live with, uh, that are very grand in some ways, practical. But uh, um, I, I wonder, I wonder first of all how, you know, how this changes the way you kind of move through the world, but also how. With living with your children, you know, how it works in both directions, how, how you take this into how you're raising them, but also how living with them informs, you know, this, this grappling you're doing, this way you're thinking and evolving your thoughts. Right. So, I mean, 
the way you describe that picture, there's someone missing, which is my wife Shiva, who's okay, the mother yeah. of the children. But I, but I, I mentioned that because um, someone joked with me when I was becoming a father for the first time. They said um, the real the real challenge for men when they become parents is not becoming a father; it's becoming the husband to a mother. Mm. And and I think that, that <laughs> although good. it's a joke, it's actually a deep joke. It's a very it's a very profound joke because your relationship with your partner changes no, fundamentally. No, it's right. It's right. Yeah, it's another and, one of these um, things we don't talk about. We don't talk about how. Parenting changes the relationship and completely. So, so as you paint that picture, I mean, and also um, Shiva, my wife is Hindu, so she's brought that sort of richness of Mm. um, the whole Indian tradition into my life as well, and 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 that's also in the children's lives. And I think um, one way to understand this is that I often look with some envy at friends of mine who are having time to go to public events in London or, um, you know, going on spiritual retreat for two weeks and I'm there doing the dishes or getting the kids to bed or changing a nappy or whatever, or a diaper as you call it. Yeah. And um, I'm, on the one hand, occasionally frustrated and I wouldn't want to pretend that it's all grace and dignity. You know, there's quite a lot of apologizing along the way. But I think what it's done for me is it does get you out of your own head to some extent. You know, there are these other beings. They, they look at you with their big eyes and they are, one of the things they're saying to you is, Daddy, get out of your head. You know, I'm here. Mm, yeah. You know, look at me, be yeah. with me. Um, so I was joking with a friend, I'm trying to build an organization, but my three-year-old wants to build a train track. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of part of my daily experience. So it's grounding, but it can be, you know, I wouldn't want to give it... Um, the wrong impression. It can be very exacting and parenting is often exhausting. But, yeah, it's physically you know, exhausting. Physically exhausting mm-hmm. and, and also the, the joy that comes through, I think there's a famous line in the in the poetry of Halil Gibran and the Prophet about the deeper that um, sorrow carves into your being, the more joy it can contain and mm-hmm. I sometimes think about that with children. It's not so much sorrow but the more stress, the more exhaustion, the more worn down you become through your children, the more the moments of grace and beauty when they, they do something utterly delightful yeah. and it leaves you feeling proud and joyful and, and it, you know, you feel it all the more intensely for having gone through the, the mill a bit to get there. Mm. Well, um, I think I want to talk a little bit about hope as we mm-hmm. draw to a close. You also gave me this beautiful quotation of Václav Havel, which I know I heard years ago, but it was good to read it again in this moment, which I'm going to read mm-hmm. it now. You know, hope is a state of mind, not of the world. It is an orientation of the spirit and orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond its horizons. Hope in this deep and powerful sense is not the same as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously heading for success, but rather an ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. The more propitious the situation in which we demonstrate hope, the deeper the hope is. Hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. (laughs) And of course, he had lived through just extraordinary complexity, right? And hardship. Those were hard-won words. Well, I mean, where do I start? I think with, with the question of hope, I mean, I think it's incumbent on anyone who would define their work 
as being in some sense about changing the world. Um, and that it can be quite a hubristic notion, of course. But anyone who is trying to fashion better forms of living, um, they need some working theory of hope. And um, I like the definition of uh, Roberto Unger as well, which mm. says that hope is the visionary anticipation of a direction. So it's <laughs> it's not just so much about thinking things will be better, but actually sort of seeing a place that's worth going to and orienting your will mm. towards that. So when I, I quite recently created a new organization called Perspectiva, and the purpose of the organization in some ways is to paint a vision of the future and a pathway of getting there that does instill a certain amount of hope. And I think the only way we're going to do that is if we get better at linking together what we call systems, souls, and society. So complex systems, including the economy and politics and all that, the, the totality of our inner worlds and then how we talk to each other and how we live together. And I think if we can get better and more nimble and more generous about how we move between those worlds, then the chance of creating a hope that makes sense for all of us is all the greater. Hmm. You, um, We haven't spoken about chess this whole time and you are, of course, a chess grandmaster and that's such an interesting thing about you that you bring together. And there's one place where I saw you drawing on a chess image, um, it, Zugzwang? Is that, yes. is that how you say it? I mean, that's how you say yeah. it in Germany. Is that how chess people say it? Zugzwang, Zugzwang yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we, we try to at least. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, would you talk about your, you know, your not, not just the word, yeah, but the experience of chess. I mean, I feel like you bring this together in a wonderful way with what political hope is and, 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 well, and this experience yeah. of chess. Yeah. So, so interestingly, I'm, I'm, I'm on, in the last few moments of finishing a book called um, The Moves That Matter, and uh, the subtitle is The Chess Grandmaster on the Game of Life. So I've, I've had some time to think about okay. what, what this means. And one of the things that I think chess gives you is um, an appreciation for, for looking at the whole position, that, that often in life um, we end up looking too zoomed in on one particular feature of the position. But chess gives you this disposition to try and see as far as possible what's going on in the state of the world as a whole. And the other thing it gives you is a fairly good sense of the opponent. The fact there's always this alternative narrative, this alternative story coming right back at you. And their reality is no less real than yours. Mm. And, and, and what it gives you as well is, um, rather than thinking of these big grand schemes of, of you know, how to think 100 moves, 100 moves or 100 years in advance, your main responsibility as a chess player is to play the, the best move in the position that's immediately in front of you. And obviously that has to be more or less visionary but still it's good and circumspect just to realize that your primary responsibility is what do you do next mm. and how do you do that well. Mm. So uh, as, a, as far as possible, I try and keep that in mind as I go through life, not to get too far ahead of the next thing. Mm. And in Zugzwang... Um, so, so compulsion, yeah. Yeah, the way I understood that is where everybody feels stuck, right? There's yeah, no so, good move. <laughs> yeah, so, 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 so Zugzwang, as I understand it, is it's literally compulsion to move. And, it, and it, the reason it's relevant is that often you don't want to move. So uh, in most occasions in chess, to have the move would be a good thing. And, and yeah, you can make yeah. good use of the opportunity. But there are some situations where you can only do harm in your move. And curiously... Um, at the risk of being slightly political, some have described the situation in the UK uh, leaving the European Union right. as giving rise to a situation of Zugzwang. Right. So there's no good get, move. Yeah, you get to a moment where it feels like you have to make a move, but nothing actually works. Right. Um, 
And then it gets more interesting. You get things like recipro reciprocal Zugzwang, where neither side can move without doing any harm. And then it's all about trying to get it so that your opponent has to move instead of you. And, and this plays out in all sorts of political ways, too. Yeah. I think um, someplace you said political hope depends on humanity not not being in Zugzwang. And, and mm. it does, I mean, that it is, it is a wonderful metaphor for where we are now. Well, 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 you mentioned Havel saying something makes sense. I think that's the connection I see here. It's mm -hmm. that you make a move because it makes sense. You, you don't necessarily think it will lead to checkmate. But you, you have a rationale and a and a feeling that it makes sense and that it matters, and you and you play it, and then you hope. And the same way with life, you know, you you need to do what what is in front of you. If that's washing the dishes, wash the dishes, but take the next step. And you know, you may find that what follows is all the better for that. Mm -hmm. If I just ask you, kind of right now at this moment in your life and the life of the world, I mean, what what makes you despair, and and where are you? finding hope? Where are you looking for hope? Hmm. Um, what makes me despair is shrillness. Um, and that comes from all sides of the political spectrum. So those who are so sure of what the problem is, and it's often laced with projection, it's laced with not seeing our own complicity in certain forms of the problem. Um, whether that's attacking the current American administration or lamenting Britain's decision to leave the EU or whether it's something more proximate like complaining against all the bankers being terrible or all the you know political party that you dislike being terrible um, I find that very unhelpful you know I think there is a there is a time and a place for winning your battle but but really hope comes from a deep recognition that we're in it together you don't surrender your disagreements, you don't lose your values, you don't forget who you are, but you assume good faith and you try and build the world together best you can. If you reach a point where it becomes clear that the people you're hoping to cooperate with are not in good faith, then you can vigorously try and you know take a different strategy. But I think um, despair arises when we prematurely help ourselves to an understanding that is inadequate. Um, mm -hmm. And so when, when that combination of partial understanding with sort of moral certitude kicks in, I feel a certain sense of despair. Whereas when I feel hope is where there is a kind of discernment and a conviction um, about what's going on, but there's also an openness and a kind of generosity of spirit that defines it. Hmm. Any, anything else you'd like to say? Anything you... Um, the only thing that comes to mind is that I was asked uh, by the Open Society Foundations, which is a sort of massive global organization, yeah. to try and help them make sense of the global crisis in human rights as they saw it. And in the process of doing that, I again realized that um, a lot of it comes down to our working theory of what it is to be human. Mm. But I think the real challenge is linking that question as a sort of living, breathing, unresolvable, perennial issue to a particular political predicament. Now, I wrestle with that, whether really this kind of conceptual work that we do um, can really make a difference to people who are in need. And I, I've come to the conclusion that it can. <laughs> you know, I've come to the conclusion that actually finding the right forms of language um, has real effects in the world. It changes conversations, which changes cultures, which changes practices. And I think 
those who are charged, charged with making sense of the world and feel called upon to do that should not despair that their work's irrelevant. I think I've come to believe that um, making, making the world clearer and looking at our foundations more fully can actually give, you know, give rise to real results for people who are suffering on a day-by-day basis. Is there any example that comes to mind in terms of language, a shift of language? Um, one that comes to mind is um, climate change itself, actually. Yeah. Um, because I, I think uh, change is such a neutral term um, mm. that I, I now think in terms of um, climate collapse. I find it a more useful... Mm. I think climate emergency is too strong. I think climate breakdown makes it sound too mechanical. I think we're looking at a systemic collapse gradually unfolding in front of us. So you need to find a form of language that is heartfelt and true to the nature of the problem, but which isn't shrill and doesn't provoke a needless defensive reaction. Given that that language is perpetuated and multiplied by a million and million plus times around the the globe, finding the right form and the right reverberation of language um, really makes a difference in terms of how people feel it. Because mm-hmm. as I said earlier, mm-hmm. the, the main challenge on that particular issue is learning to feel it. So right. collapse, not change. Because our lungs collapse, financial systems collapse, and we collapse in exhaustion at the end of a difficult day. I think people can relate to that. So if we say the climate is collapsing, it's so much more evocative than to say it's merely changing. Jonathan Rousin is a co-founder and director of the research institute Perspectiva, based in London. He's also the former director of the Social Brain Center at the Royal Society of Arts, and he is a chess grandmaster and British chess champion. His books include The Seven Deadly Chess Sins and, more recently, Spiritualize, Cultivating Spiritual Sensibility to Address 21st Century Challenges. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lin, Prophet Edewu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, and Nicole Finn. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of the On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind, learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org slash discoveries, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. 
the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. 